From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While much of its impact has been lessened thanks to the introduction of the early signing period in December, February's edition of National Signing Day saw the completion of the class that Dan Mullen and his staff have been putting together since they arrived on campus over a year ago. This month also brings the start of more high-profile spring sports, which this week includes softball and lacrosse. On today's show, we'll hear about the final touches for football signing class and check in on hoops with FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. Then, we'll go in-depth on softball's new digs and get a season preview from head coach Tim Walton. But first, more of a continuation than a sequel, the Gators were able to fill more positions of need and maintain the momentum that they built throughout the season on the second national signing day. So to open our roundtable, we asked Scott to tell us about the new arrivals and what they mean for the program. Well, we'll start. The difference between, obviously, the early signing period in December and today was there were a lot more players signed in December 21. So you knew going into today there was a possibility of four or five players signing. But the biggest storyline, Adam, is clearly the additions of Chris Bogle, a linebacker from Cardinal Gibbons High down in Fort Lauderdale, and Kyrie Elam, uh, a defensive back from the Benjamin School down in Palm Beach. So going into the day, Florida was in the running for both players, but you really didn't know which way these guys were going to go because Vogel had committed to Alabama a month ago, and not a lot of guys uh, flip from Alabama these days. Elam, he's always had interest in Florida because his uncle, uh, Matt Elam, Gator fans remember him well. He's been a priority for Dan Mullen and his staff. Yet, on his official visit to Georgia a couple of weeks ago, Carlton Warren, the quarterback's coach here, takes a job at Georgia for Kirby Smart. So it raised a lot of questions how that would impact Elam's decision. And guess what? The Gators got both of them, which uh, a huge get. You know, Dan Mullen at his press conference was asked specifically about what's it say about the program when you're swinging guys from two of the your biggest competitors in the SEC, Alabama and Georgia, to get where Florida wants to go. They're going to have to get over those two programs. And, I mean, that was really the, the just another sign of the momentum that this program has built under Dan Mullen. Adding those two guys plus receiver R.J. Henderson and linebacker DeWan Black, it shot Gators into the top ten in the uh, national uh, rankings, which they have not been there on National Signing Day, Adam, in five years. Wow. How's that for you? It's been uh, it's since the 2014 class. That's the last time Florida's had a top 10 uh, recruiting class in the national ranking. So uh, a good day. I mean, Ogle is a, a talent right away that could come in and contribute maybe an edge rusher in, in the loss of uh, Ja'Kai Polite, where they'll be looking for some help there. Uh, Elam, I think, is uh, someone who's going to come in and also have a chance to play right away. If you've seen any recruiting videos on him, he's a, built a lot like his uncle Matt Elam, you know, a physical presence for a college freshman. Uh, so, again, both of those guys, uh, a big day for Florida. 
Cam Mullen, his honeymoon voice, he's on a roll. I mean, <laughs> they win 10 games. They win a, a New Year's Six Bowl game. Uh, they had a nice performance on the early signing period and now to close. They, like you said, they only signed four players. It gives them 25 in the class. Uh, two of those guys were what they call huge gets in the recruiting world. And that had uh, Florida surging up the uh, rankings. The other part of this I find interesting, and I saw this take online in a few places, is that you have two different schools, Alabama, Georgia, that Florida's chasing. Both of them stole, essentially, assistance from the Gators during this final stretch. And then Florida got both players that were choosing between both schools. So I think it, it does speak a lot to the momentum that we've talked about frequently for Florida for a lot of things you just talked about, Scott, and also to what Dan Mullen is building and, and the recognition that he now carries just in the way that Nick Saban loses assistance but he still gets tons of players because it's Nick Saban. Dan Mullen is building that brand where guys are coming to play for his program, not necessarily just because of the assistants who are most involved in their recruitment. Yeah, I mean, the, the Florida brand had taken a beating in, in recent years, but Mullen's re-energized it, a rebranded program, if you will, in his, in his own vision. And players love to play for a winner. I mean, Florida, again, 10-3 last year. They were in the hunt for the SEC East until that loss to Georgia. Then they rebounded, what, to win their final, what, five games? Longest streak they've had in a while. And that caught a lot of attention uh, nationally. I just think uh, it's it's what the program needed. It's what Mullen wanted to do. And you just never know how a new, how much a new coach is going to change the culture and change the direction of the program in year one. I just don't think that Florida fans can ask much more of Dan Mullen right now, how far they've come. And, you know, Mullen, you could tell he was excited. He spoke for about 45 minutes. <laughs> he was visibly excited in the way that they went and this class is going. And, uh, he, you know, they're already working on the 2020 class and to keep that momentum going. But there's really no else to say. I mean, he's had a, a, a the Midas touch so far in his, what, 14 months on the job. So what's next, Scott? Because it seems like the next big thing on the calendar is spring football. But in between now and then, what activity are we expecting to see? Well, they're going to they're really working heavy in the office, you know, building toward the 2020 class. Mullen talked about how they had to wait to see what was going to happen with these players. They spent most of their time meeting and reviewing and scouting the 2020 class to make sure that they continue to climb up those recruiting rankings. I mean, because he knows that to compete with the Clemsons and the Georgias and the Alabamas, you're going to have to finish in the top 10 every year, usually in the recruiting. And then you have spring camp, you have nine mid-year enrollees already here. So they're they're getting acclimated to the program. They're going to see what those nine players can do in spring and see what help they may provide in year one. And I'm guessing at some point after spring get them, they'll take a little break. But right now, it's still building the 2020 class and getting ready for spring football and and Nick Savage doing his work behind the scenes with the uh, strength and conditioning program. As a lot of spring sports are about to get going, one that is uh, still ongoing right now is Gator basketball. And Chris, a, a tough week for the Gators. Two 
really difficult matchups. Kentucky at home, on the road at Auburn. Uh, the Kentucky game, they're obviously in a much better position to win than the Auburn game. But I'm curious, takeaways from this week where we saw kind of the, the same script that they've gone by in two different phases. The one script where they have a late lead, they can't hold it against a really good team. And the other one where they go on the road against a good team and, and just struggle to, to really gain any footing right from the opening tip. Yeah, when you're talking about uh, both those teams, Kentucky and Auburn, Adam, are obviously high-scoring teams. Auburn is a high-scoring and an up-tempo team. Um, it wasn't an, a favorable matchup uh, going into that for sure. Now, let's if we can just go back a couple of days earlier to the Kentucky game um, here at home, third uh, uh, sellout against a top-10 team. I, I don't remember Florida playing three top-10 teams at home. Uh, in the same season uh, in some time. I mean, I'm probably wrong, but uh, I think that's pretty unique. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, with the loss at Auburn, they've now lost to four of the, of the top 14 teams uh, in wow. the Ken Palm uh, advanced metrics rating. So they, they played a, a very difficult schedule, obviously. About to get harder, by the way. Mm -hmm. They faced number one Tennessee on the road on Saturday. So uh, no one's going to expect them to win that game. It's going to be a very, very difficult game for them to win. But Auburn knew exactly how, how to defend Florida. I mean, you, you get out on the on the perimeter and you make life difficult on Kayvon Allen and Noah Locke. And then, you know, you kind of X those guys out and say, what do you got now, guys? Okay. Mm -hmm. Noah Locke, uh, the Gators, to their credit, were able to, you know, get inside of the three-point line a few times, get inside of the paint and hit some uh, um, what you would call tough twos. Um, but uh, meanwhile, Auburn is, you know, forcing 17 turnovers, turning them into – uh, 19 points, getting out in transition, and that's where Bruce Pearl's teams are are outstanding. When they use their speed and they use their aggressive defense to uh, to get the game going up and down, and they know when they're in transition how to space the floor. And when you got got shooters like like Bryce Brown and uh, uh, Jared Harper and those guys that just have the green light all the time in that game, that's the design of their offense. They hit some of those shots. They got up to a 12-point uh, lead in the first half. Florida managed to get it to four early in the second half. But then, boom, came one of those 14-2 to two runs. And all of a sudden, you're down 18. And it's funny because they were down 18, I say, with eight minutes left in the game. And they are shooting 54% from the floor at the time. Hmm. Uh, Auburn, unfortunately, was shooting 65% from the floor. Wow. Game ended up being a little closer cosmetically than – with the score or what have you. But uh, um, it, again, you, you mentioned tough matchup and it was uh, Tennessee is going to be a very tough matchup uh, this weekend. Obviously they're the number one team in the country. They've set a school record though Tuesday night with their 17th straight victory. Uh, they are on an incredible role. They are you know, the defending sec co-champions and certainly a fashionable pick right now to make it to the final four and, and play for the whole thing. Uh, Florida's never beaten a number one ranked team in the regular season in their history. They've, they've only beaten number one ranked teams twice, and that was both in the NCAA tournament, Duke in 2000, and Ohio State for the national championship in 2007. So, uh, uh, you know, Mike White was asked about the team last week. This is a, this this team has hard, and he came right out. You know, we can't. This isn't a team that can that can post the ball. Okay, so you got to find other ways to try to score. And if uh, uh, teams are extending defenses on Kayvon Allen and he's not able to drive the ball and maybe finish some stuff around the rim or uh, Noah Locke isn't be able to hit threes like uh, he, he, he wasn't able to the last couple games, per se, the scoreboard is going to be uh, challenging. And that was the case, obviously, against Auburn. And I, I anticipate it's probably going to be the case against Tennessee also on the road. Place is going to be sold out. 
and uh, they are loving their basketball right now up in Tennessee because they certainly didn't have a whole lot to cheer about during the football season. Chris, you're on Twitter, uh, just like I am, just like Scott is. So you see a lot of the sin right now among the fan base. There's a lot of frustration. And yet, if there you is? look at... really. <laughs> And yet, if you look at, at Joe Lenardi's bracketology, uh, up until a few days ago, he still had Florida in the tournament right on the bubble. So that schedule you talked about means that they're still in a position, despite their struggles, to maybe crack into the big dance. But obviously, there's work to do. And, and you talk about finding wins. Where are those wins that they're going to need to get into the tournament and reverse this recent trend? Right now, they played nine games against teams in uh, quad one, which is the top 50 of the of the new metric, the N- the NET or the net, however, what, however you refer to it. They're one in eight in those games. The only win is an, is, is overall miss. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look, if you expand it to top 100 with quad ones and quads two, I believe they're five and nine. And again, this is a, a schedule that's among, I believe now the 15th most difficult in the country. So you get credit for that, but you don't get credit for, for losses. Mm-hmm. They give you a little bit in terms of if you play teams tough and Florida certainly have done that. They've been in, just about every game with the exception of the, of the Auburn game and the Florida State game to start off. And those are two very, very good teams, obviously. But, uh, you do got to win these games, uh, some of these games and you got to, they're probably going to have to get out. I, I think they got to get to 18. I think that may be good enough with the schedule because that means they win games at the end of the year. And people and committees always look, uh, favorably when you get on a little bit of a hot streak. Now they'll still have that albatross hanging around their necks about not being able to beat a good team. But if they can get to 18, that means they will have beat an Alabama or an LSU or um, done something. And as it stands right now at four and five, uh, they're still, I think they're in sixth place in the SEC. SEC is a good lead. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're in a jumble there. There are a bunch of teams between like, uh, like four and I want to say, you know, 10th and 11th. So a lot can change. They could, they could end up, you know, a little bit higher. They could end up a lot lower, but it's all about, you know, finding a favorable outcome. And uh, there's no trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, Kavaris Hayes is not going to all of a sudden become a back to the basket basketball player. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah Stokes, while he's lost, uh, I think 15 pounds, if I understand over the last couple of weeks, wow. put him in the other night and a, a couple possessions. I think the, there was a rebound right in front of him that he couldn't get. And then he set an illegal screen and turned the ball over on the other end. Um, he's not going to become a great player all day. They're, they're, they are what they are. And uh, if, if Florida can, can hit shots, Florida will be in basketball games. Uh, if Florida is in close basketball games, that means they're playing defense because they can normally play very, very good defense. Auburn uh, use their defense to force turnovers, get out in transition and play their style of play the other night and shot a higher percentage than Florida is used to surrendering. So, like you said, a difficult matchup that was uh, they, they played in Auburn's hands on the road uh, that made it all all the tougher. Thompson Bowling Arena, you've been there, Adam. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a gigantic, beautiful building now, um, and it's going to be full of a bunch of orange maniacs who are going to want blood on the Gators uh, Saturday night. So we'll, we'll shake it all out after that game and see where they stand. But I imagine that there's going to be some soul searching next week because they won't have to go into a week looking at something daunting like the past three games, Kentucky, Auburn, Tennessee. They'll be looking at Vanderbilt, Missouri, Alabama, LSU. What I, I don't know what order it is, but mm-hmm. they'll be they'll look at games and say, okay, it's it's time now. We're either going to win these games or we're going to the NIT or not going to a, a postseason tournament at all. And uh, uh, it's as simple as that. What what sort of team do you want to be? That's kind of the message to the players right now. Let's move on to this week's PAT. It's an interesting PAT because it's it's got a Florida angle, and then it also does it at the same time. And I'm thinking, of course, about this new 
professional football league starting this weekend where Steve Spurrier is the head coach of the Orlando team. Uh, and you know, it's kind of curious what the expectations are going to be uh, for you guys. What is this league going to look like? What does Spurrier say about it? And, and what should we expect? Well, with Spurrier, he, he brings that big name to the league. But there's a lot of those, as you mentioned, you know, and talking to him, this is a little different than his days in the USFL with the Tampa Bay Bandits. You know, back then, they were trying to basically steal a lot of the great college players. I think at one point, they they had three straight Heisman winners signed with them instead of NFL, and they were trying to compete with the NFL. This is different in the fact that it's more of a developmental league. He thinks that if guys have some good seasons that they can get to the NFL through this, there's going to be some guys who've already played in in the NFL and are trying to get back and uh, so you have a, and you have, you know, college guys who maybe just haven't had a chance in the professional level trying to make their mark. So there's a lot of different dynamics in terms of players, but it does have a lot of connection to, you know, former NFL executive Bill Polian is one of the founders. Heinz Wards works with the league. Troy Palomalu is the player, I guess, representative for the league. Uh, I was looking. The, the Orlando uh, team opened Saturday in Orlando against Atlanta Legends, and I was looking at the Atlanta Legends roster. Their offensive coordinator is Michael Vick. I That's mean, right. So, yeah, so you know, there's there's certainly some names with each franchise. There's only eight teams, uh, but with each each franchise, there's some names that people are going to recognize. Uh, some as coaches such as Spurrier, some as former players such as Vick. Uh, so it's going to be interesting, but from Spurrier's perspective, he obviously missed the, this is the longest stretch since he was, you know, got his first head coaching job back in 1982, 83 with the Bandits that he hasn't been a head coach. It's been three plus years since mid season 2015 that he stepped down at South Carolina. Uh, less than a year later, he came back to UF as the ambassador of the athletic program and, and while I think he enjoys that job you he's a competitor he misses that part of it and he's you know he recently had a back surgery uh to get ready for this uh he, but he said he's healthy he got excited out in San Antonio during the uh, training camp in a practice game against the San Diego franchise Mike Martz is their head coach and you know, he's sitting there calling plays and he kind of reminded himself how much he missed it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's rejuvenated him in some ways. And for the league, it's good to have a, a brand name like Steve Spurrier for a franchise in Orlando. And you know, it'll be interesting to see what kind of crowd they get. They're playing at UCS home stadium, but I know that media in Orlando has hyped it up quite a bit and Spurrier has garnered a lot of attention from the national media for getting back into coaching. Uh, so I'm curious about it like uh, a lot of other people. Eventually, the championship game will be the Jurassic Bowl. It'll be <laughs> Dennis Erickson's coaching one of the team. Mike Singletary <laughs> is one of the coaches. Uh, you said you mentioned Mike Martz. I think Mike Riley is one of them also. Huh. Uh, and I always like these alternative leagues when they when they come up uh, to see the uh, just the names, the Atlanta Legends, the Birmingham Iron, the Memphis Express, mm-hmm. the Orlando Apollos, the Arizona Hotshots, the Salt Lake Stallions, the San Antonio Commanders, and of course, the San Diego Fleet. <laughs> I think you've already ordered your San Diego Fleet. Shirt, <laughs> uh, maybe. I, I, I tell you what, I wouldn't mind covering the San Diego Fleet, Orlando Apollo road game. Yeah. If Orlando Apollo is going the road to San Diego, I'll I'll take that trip if somebody <laughs> wants to send me out there. 
yeah, I mean, I can see it, this is going to be one of those things that uh, people are going to be in bars and the, the you know it's got a contract with CBS, so uh, these games are going to be on TV. People are going to have to. It'll be an acquired taste probably because you're not going to know a lot of the a lot of the players. There'll be the occasional name, and you'll recognize a face or two maybe in the booth, like Scott mentioned, whether it's Michael Vick or whoever. I, I seriously don't know a lot of a lot of the players that are in this. I mean, Scott, who are some of the Florida players that are in um, that are with Spurious roster? I know it's Austin Appleby. Yeah, Austin Appleby's a quarterback on the team. Uh, with the Orlando franchise, there's it, going to be a lot of former Gators, Seminoles, and Hurricanes. So as far as Florida players, you mentioned Austin Appleby, the quarterback. Cody Riggs, a guy who was mm-hmm. here and left to play his final season at Notre Dame. Leon Orr, the defensive tackle, made mm-hmm. the team. You know, you're going you're to be watching one of these games, and, whoa, I remember that guy. And I, I think that's just going to be a reaction a lot of people will have. But the coaches are a little more well known, you know, certainly like Chris mentioned earlier, a lot of a lot of veteran coaches who have been around the game for a long time and Spurrier being one of them. And there's a couple of things that are intriguing about the game itself. There's no T V timeout. So these games are gonna roll along pretty fast. Interesting. Uh, there's no kickoffs. Each drive starts at the twenty five and let's say a team does want to try an onside kick. What they do is try it's like a fourth down and ten at your thirty five. You make the first down, you get the ball. If you don't, you know, you're giving the other team a great field position. So, huh. so there's some intriguing elements there. It's, it, they're trying to make it within a two and a half hour window. Probably a lot of points would be preferable. And, and again, just having some familiar names in the mix. There will be players that will, uh, step up and, uh, uh, you know, distinguish themselves that will end up playing in the fall i have i have no doubt about that given the opportunity guys will seize on that so that'll be uh something to certainly keep your eye on well hopefully there's more points scored than than the super bowl because that was uh that was extremely boring so I'll, I'll give it a look right why not it's football there's not a lot else going on we'll check it out so in the meantime go to floridagators.com for continuing coverage of national sign day scott's got everything for you on this new class and of course on the basketball front follow Chris. He will be in Knox, Vegas on Saturday afternoon for Florida, Tennessee. You can follow all of his content at Gators Chris and on the website as well. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. When KDC Shore Presley Stadium opened in 1997, it was the talk of the SEC and a big step forward for the sport in the state of Florida. But in the last decade, splashy new venues around the league slowly bumped the Gators home from its perch among the best in the SEC toward the bottom of the pack. Now, the Gators are chomping back thanks to an $11 million renovation that makes KDC Shore Presley Stadium look like a whole new venue. With the season opening in Tampa this weekend and the stadium set to debut next week, we spoke with head coach Tim Walton about the upcoming year and the amazing changes to the home of the two-time national champions. I'll be honest with you, it'll give you the chills just getting inside the stadium and, and standing in it for the first time. I, I can, you know, kind of paint the picture for you. When you walk in the gates of Katie Seashore Presley Stadium and you'll walk underneath Rosemary Oberndorf press box, which is a normal size press box in a softball stadium. The only difference is it's elevated. So it's a raised press box right above the view. So you're going to get a picturesque view of what the, the stadium is going to look like at all times. You have a 360-degree concourse. You've got shade in, in multiple spots. 
And um, that right there will just give you the chills thinking about it. But more impressively, it's going to give you just a, a great first impression of what KDC Show Presley Stadium is. And it's also going to remind you of what it was in the past. It still has the great close proximity to uh, to everybody on, on the field and everybody in the ballpark. You know, it's funny. The, the way that, that stadiums go and facilities go is, is pretty cyclical. I mean, when KDC Shore Presley Stadium opened back in the late 90s, it was state-of-the-art and, you know, had everything you could ask for. And then you look at the, the new wave of SEC stadiums in the last 10 years or so with Bogle Park at Arkansas probably being the, the best example of that. Now A&M's got a new facility. There seems to be a, a keeping up with the Joneses type of uh, mentality in softball. So how important was it for this program to be able to join that group. I go in the stadium, you know, every day now, and I thought our old stadium was nice. It was very fan friendly. Um, you know, we had we had nice amenities, um, but just to be able to keep up with technology and and all the things that we need, you know, in this digital age that we're in, and and uh, just being uh, just a little bit more innovative. We have some new innovative products that we've got in and out of the stadium. We've got new features. But now we're able to tie in, you know, the past to the present. Um, you're going to be able to take a look at each College World Series appearance team on the concourse. Um, you're going to have some features there that you didn't have in the past. You've got more women's restrooms, updated men's and women's restroom, more concession. Um, so, and then the shade structures, you know, the, we're now selling seats. Every seat is a chair back. Hmm. You know, I think that that's going to give you a first class uh, view of the stadium from a comfortable seat. And um, we've got plenty of standing room area. So if you want to be somebody who wants to stand in left field, you're going to be able to stand out in the, in the new home bullpen out in left field. You're going to be right out there next to the players. Um, you'll be out in right field. You've got the same view in right field. This is really a statement and, and no statement different than anything else that the University of Florida has done for all of its teams. Um, you know, Scott Strickland and Linda Teeler and Laird Veach and, you know, Jeremy Foley before them. They, they just treat us all so, so well. And um, anything that we need, they're going to do everything in their power to get it for us. I haven't even talked about the players' advantages of the new facility yet. Mm -hmm. And um, this is all just, uh, again, when I go in there in the stadium and go in and look, I'm so prideful that Scott Strickland and, and Laird Beach and Chip Howard and Jeremy Foley before them, they've all asked for my input. They want to know what I think. They want to know what I need. They want to know what I want. They want to know what the players want. And um, I've been involved in every step of the way. And um, it's been very fun. I've learned a ton about construction. I've learned a ton about opinions. I've learned a ton about textiles and ADA <laughs> codes and, uh, <laughs> You name it. It's but it's but it's been really you know but it's been really fun. I told my whole entire coaching staff and support staff, they've all had a hand in their in their own individual areas. With that being said, you know, when you look at a rendering, when you look at a, uh, an architecture design, when you actually build something, they're not always exactly the way they looked on a computer screen. So we've got some some little tweaks and some things we're going to have to probably do in this first year of operation just to get the the facility exactly perfect, not only perfect looking aesthetically but also perfectly playing we got some you know some little i wouldn't even call them growing pains because i don't see it that way i see this more of a just an opportunity to you know to perfect something that's already pretty dang perfect 
You talked about the the fan side, and obviously that's a huge part of this. But from a team standpoint, I know you're always trying to utilize the latest technology to improve performance and analytics. What's something new that you're going to have the capability to use now because of this new facility? You know, the the one thing that we've always really tried to emphasize within our team learning and our teaching, we've always had time, classroom time, where we've had an opportunity for our team to focus on some some plays, focus on video. So we built a media room. It's an area of separation. When our players go into this room, they know we're going to be doing some. New, we're going to be doing some learning. We're going to be doing some teaching. We're going to be doing some things um, with a projector. We're going to be doing some things with some chalk talk or some different stuff like that. But it's also going to double as an interview area. So post game media is going to have an opportunity to come in there and and do those interviews in there in a, in a professional environment. It's going to serve a lot of purposes, but I think the main focus for me was giving our athletes a place where they can go in and and work and you know pull their iPads out and 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 really um, you know focus on what we have it whether we had it on yesterday's practice or yesterday's game or what we're going to do in today's uh, you know today's practice. I want to talk about another change. This doesn't have anything to do with facilities. It has more to do with your staff makeup. But one big change this year, obviously, is the absence of Jen Rocha, who has been with you, you know, your entire coaching career. So I'm curious what that change has been like not having her. And then at the same time, the new blood that you've added to the coaching staff as a result. It's been a been an interesting, you know, very interesting year um, for me on a personal level, you know, First, start off with you know Jennifer and Paul uh, adopting a baby and really having myself to be kind of interjected in the pitching staff for about a month. Um, that was last year, you know, in the, in the 2018 season, and then going a year with her being a mom and the changes that we had to make. You know, great changes, positive changes. But you know, anytime you would you welcome anybody new into your family, it's 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 changes. And now with her you know, going back to her alma mater and, and taking her husband back to his alma mater, which again is a rare opportunity for many people. It was a tough transition for me on a personal level because of our professional relationship, but also our personal relationship and the friendship that we've, we've really created over, you know, almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. That was a tough change. And, and bringing in Mike Bosch, you know, Mike Bosch is really good. We've seen some very positive transition from him, but he's not Jennifer Rocha. And, and when he's not Jennifer Rocha, it doesn't, it doesn't mean he's not Jennifer Rocha to the players, um, but he is he is different than Jennifer Rocha. He is a men's fast pitch player, he, although she was a you know a, a female fast pitch player. Um, he's different, and so we've had you know that that transition for the players and the transition for the coaches, and uh, and we're still going to find out. You know, I, I tell our players all the time. You know, he's sharp as sharp can be, whether or not he can call the pitches, whether or not he can get the pitchers to perform in certain things. You know, those are all obviously, you know, to be determined, but I, I love his preparation. I love his attention to detail. He's fit in very well with, with our, with our entire staff. He's a good man. He's a good teacher. He's got an eye for excellence and a hard worker. And, you know, again, it's been a good addition. I mean, there's, there's always a lot of positives that can be made from a change as well. It's been a good addition. We've, we've learned a lot already from Mike and to top that off, you know, I also hired Jolene Henderson, who's a three-time All-American at Cal, um, the reigning NPF uh, Pitcher of the Year. She's played professionally in Japan and Europe and plays here in the States. And um, where Mike and Tim Walton may lack in, you know, in, in personality in regards to developing relationships and sometimes friendships with the pitchers, 
I think Jolene has that. She's closer to age to our players. She's obviously, you know, a women's fast pitch player, so she can relate to certain things that the players are doing. And it's been a nice combination to have, you know, Mike doing the technical details and the, you know, the structuring of their, their practice plans. And Jolene can come in and, you know, help the players with, with anything that they need. They can re- really go to her and, and she can give them her experiences and some things she's done in the past to overcome some things mentally and physically in the circle. And, I mean, our, our staff is, it's a really good staff and, um, you know, obviously disappointed in losing Jennifer after so many years, but, um, you know, also humbly learning from Mike in a different way. And things are, things have been really good in, in all of our, in all of our work environments. This sort of ties into that whole conversation as well about the future and, and what's happening going forward. But since we last spoke during the offseason, you signed a really long-term extension to stay in Gainesville right at the same time as the stadium was starting to be built. So can you just talk about why it was important on your side to show that commitment to the program and in continuing to build what you've built here over the last decade? As everybody knows, the sport of softball is, is, is evolving into being one of the major sports in all of college athletics. And that's a positive. It's a, it's a very, very positive thing for the, for the student athletes, for the fans, for the stadium, for the game, and for the coaches. But with that also comes the essence of recruiting, the negative recruiting, the um, speculation, the media polls, the media basically assuming you're going to be courted to take other positions and you're going to be doing this and all the things that go with uh, again success i think everybody would tell you that that goes with success and it also goes with failure and um i i won't lie to you i actually jeremy fully signed me to a 10-year contract extension a couple years ago so i was on my eighth year of a 10-year deal Hmm. and scott strickland thought and, and nobody advertised that nobody read about it nobody even knew it existed except for you know me and you know, really me and my coaches or really me and my family. Um, but Scott and I really discussed that as being really important to get that out so that we could not only, number one, end some speculation, some things that were out there, um, but also, um, you know, to impact the the recruiting. And and then he, he really basically told me he wanted me to, um, he wanted to show me that he had really a lot of respect for our program. He really liked the way we did did our business. He liked our program style. He liked the way our players uh, exemplified what it means to be a Florida Gator at the University of Florida. And I thought it was it was really a nice gesture, um, and it was really a nice the, the advertisement piece. I think was more needed for you know really the recruiting side of things. Um, but I think for me, it was really a message from Scott to me saying, "Hey, we want you to coach at the University of Florida as long as you want to be here." And, and that was his exact words. But you know, again, for me personally. That doesn't change the way I work. It doesn't mean that I'm going to stop working. Uh, I'm super competitive in, in everything that I know. And Scott just giving me, um, you know, his blessing and obviously the blessing of the board of trustees and everybody else that has a voice in, you know, in the UAA athletics. It was super exciting for me. And, and I think it was good for the game, too. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, you know, there's a lot of young coaches out there doing a great job. And you can now go to work every day and be a softball coach and be a mentor to a lot of kids. and you could actually probably retire from being a softball coach, you know, one day, you know, down the road if you, if you do a great job. And that, that wasn't something that I got in the game to do, but it's, 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 it's here we are. It's here's what we're doing now. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for, uh, you know, really for the opportunity to be here. Thankful for the opportunity that Jeremy fully gave me to be here. And, 
And after I signed that new contract, I actually text Jeremy and told him that. So it was, mm-hmm. uh, again, it's not only Scott, but Linda, Linda's Linda plays a big part of that too. Linda's my boss and she's been a great mentor and leader to me because she's, she's just, Hey, what do you need? What do you want? And Hey, I need you to do this a little bit better. She's been, she's been really good for me to, to learn from somebody who is a true, um, really, really good, uh, good leader at the top. I want to talk about this year's team, starting with your senior class, which includes two of arguably the most talented players in program history, Amanda Lorenz, Kelly Barnhill. What are their expectations for this final ride and how do they align with your expectations for them? You know, uh, I've, I've sat down with Kelly uh, here just recently. She wanted to kind of go over not only, you know, where she's at personally, academically and athletically, but also futuristic stuff as well. Um, but uh, Amanda and I, we don't really get too caught up in goal setting. And I think, you know, she competes every swing and I compete every swing with her. And um, so we haven't really ever set any any goals personally. Everything that Amanda accomplishes is just the daily grind of her working hard and, and, and trying to, you know, get the right amount of hours in per day in her in her game. But I think our expectations have always aligned. And I think that's why they chose Florida, not only because of what we had to offer them academically, but also what we had to offer them athletically. And then there's also the personal component. And I say this, you know, a little, little cautiously, but I know what their goals are and I know what their goals are after Florida potentially to, to do some international things. And um, I allow them to do all those things. I don't try to control them. I try to get them, the best prepared for international competition. And um, so we've been able to to let both of them go to all the tryouts and work hard. And I moved Amanda Lorenz um, in August. I moved her to first base to give her the best opportunity to go to team USA and to be, you know, be ready to show them that she's working hard at not only the outfield, but also at first base. And that's probably where they project her to be futuristically. And so, I mean, that tells you right there that I, I am aligned with, with them. And, um, you know, I, I, I truly believe, you know, we, we have all of us have the same same goals, the same intentions and the same work ethic and the same drive. And, and, and again, it's it's what can I do? What can Tim Walton do to help facilitate you guys to be the best you're going to be? And what does that look like every single day? And, and they deliver. So it's been for me, it's it's fun coaching players that are 10 times better than you were as an athlete. I know that sounds silly, but. <laughs> Uh, Amanda Lorenz and Kelly Barnhill are two of the best softball players to ever play the game of softball in a collegiate uniform. And um, it's so fun to train them. It's so fun to watch them work. But they are uh, they're really good and, and, and fun to watch them be really good every day. You also have a large freshman class, which is normally the case, and also some blue chippers, if you will, in that group. So what can you tell us about this freshman class and what you expect to, to see from them? It's going to be interesting to me to see exactly what the freshmen can do. And when I say it that way, we've we've had some um, just had some surprises. Um, we've had some kids that have come in and kind of didn't didn't have the the ranking numbers that you know some others have had previously come into Florida. And, and you know, Danny Farley comes to mind right away because Danny is a you know a kid who committed to us really really late. She pitches. She can also hit. She's got tremendous power. Danny's going to pitch a lot for us this year and um, excited to, to really, I've been excited to watch her grow. The next freshman is, is Hannah Sipos and Hannah Sipos again is kind of an under the radar type recruit, 
a very academic kid. Um, but she's come in, you know, again, very low ranked, um, you know, in regards to the college softball world, she's going to start for us. Hmm. So I'm um, excited to see her play third base. She does some really nice things. She's kind of a combination between a, a Taylor Fuller and a Corey Brooks. Like they do a lot of the same kind of things. She's not a big, you know, both both Taylor Fuller and Corey Brooks are, you know, five nine, five ten respectively. She's not as 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 big and physical as those two athletes were. Um, but she plays third base like that. She plays low to the ground. She's got a good throw from the side angle. She does some really nice things. Um, Cheyenne Lindsay, um, recruiting wise, was probably the cream of the crop in uh in, for us in 2018 signing class uh she tore her acl in uh in july in her last travels uh tournament of her of her career with her friends and um she's slowly but surely coming back she's got some of the best hands offensively um that you've ever seen she can play a lot like a kelsey stewart offensively she's going to be able to bunt she's going to be able to hit she's going to hit it over the fence she's going to hit it in the gap she's going to run like crazy I just don't know if we're going to be able to see that out of her this year because of just because of the injury we are, she's getting back, but you know, again, the ACL sometimes takes away the speed and anything she has um, is speed. So we'll make a decision on her probably by March, whether or not she's going to play the season or redshirt the season or, you know, figure that out. But she's, she's been scrimmaging with us. We, we got her, we got her limited, but she's getting, getting closer to, um, and then the, the other, we have, I mean, there's obviously quite a few other freshmen in that class, uh, uh, Amanda Bean and uh, Elizabeth Hightower. We have uh, Brittany Allen is in that group as well. Brent Thomas signed with us and came in at the um, at the semester break, which is one of our first kids to ever do that in high school. Um, a local product. She's from out in Branson, but she went to Trenton High School. And, you know, she graduated early, a basketball and, and softball kid there. Uh, family's all Florida Gators. She's a catcher. Um, not sure what she'll do yet. She, she may redshirt. Um, that's kind of a, you know, a decision that we'll have to, uh, to make here as we go pretty soon. Um, but we knew that coming in and that wasn't something that would be a surprise. And then, you know, on the, uh, we have two other newcomers. We have, uh, Jade Caraway transferred, to, uh, from NC state where she, she led, led off for them and played center field at NC state. Um, she's got a chance to impact our lineup this year and some speed and she slaps and hits and does some stuff. And the, the biggest impact and clearly the one of the biggest, you know, biggest moves uh, since I've been at Florida for a transfer is is bringing in Kendall Lindemann, reigning Big Ten player of the year the last two seasons. She's a catcher, uh, hitter. Right? We scrimmaged three times last week. Kendall had more hits in three scrimmages than, you know, nine of our players had in an entire uh, fall semester. So, wow, um, <laughs> she can flat hit and um Good kid, going to be a good leader. Obviously, you bring her into to this team in the middle of the year, it makes it a little bit difficult for her to, you know, to to be a leader, leader. Um, but she's got leader qualities, leader characteristics, um, leader ca- leadership character, and a hard worker. And we're happy to have her, and um, ha- happy to help her move the needle too. She wants to, she wants to be get better, and she wants to be challenged. And and here we are with with her, you know, approaching us to to be a Florida Gator. And I think it's a it's been been a really good transition for me working with her every single day. Final question for you, Coach. I know that you're always evolving, and all the best coaches do. You learn from year to year. I'm curious what the most influential thing you've seen or read during the offseason is that's affected your mindset or your approach to, to a certain topic. You know, there's so many things. You know, I, I have found, to me personally, and, you know, I don't really have a, 
you know, a, a book or a quote or I, I built a lot of things in this. I call it a little hodgepodge of, of, of different things this year. But I, I can tell you that uh, I'm always evolving because I learn from my players. Again, I'm, I'm teaching my players, too, but I'm learning from them. I'm learning. You know, I learned a, I, I learned a lot of things from Amanda Lorenz. I learned a lot of things from, from you know, Francesca and Naya. I learned a lot of things from. Kelsey Stewart. We, that's the part. That's the best part of being, you know, the coach of what I do. I'm, I, I'm a collaborator. I like to try to figure out how to make you better at what you do, not better at what you, what I think you need to do. And I think that really helps me. But we've, we've done a lot of things. I mean, it's, it's a lot of the same stuff. I mean, Brett Ledbetter does a great job for us and our program at you know, providing us some resources to help us, um, you know, really improve not only our, our, our motivation, our inspiration, but just our whole backbone of our culture and character, what we do. And same thing with Spencer Wood. Spencer's a great resource for me personally. And um, Spencer Wood does the Icebox mental training. And um, we've really tried to try to spend a lot of time um, this off season a a little bit more on the resiliency and the bounce back mentality, because we got a tough schedule this year. Not only is the league as good as it's ever been again, um, but we've got a really good out of conference schedule. And, um, you know, there's going to be some innings, there's going to be some outs, there's going to be some games where we're going to have to figure out how to bounce back, bounce back really quickly. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, again, we, we've got a really deep team. We've got a, we've got a, you know, a large roster of players, but, you know, with that being said, we're going to, we're going to play a chunk of players, you know, probably about 10 or 11 of them, the majority of the time this year. And I think that's just clear. The players in those starting roles are, um, just head and shoulders above the, the next tier right now. And I think that's uh, it's, that's to be expected when you've got some really good players. Mm-hmm. Well, Coach, we know there's a ton of excitement for this season, not just to see the team, but also this new stadium. So we wish you a lot of luck and a, and a smooth start and look forward to talking to you later down the road. That sounds great, Adam. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Check out FloridaGators.com for all the info about this weekend's action, which includes road debuts for softball and lacrosse, as well as tough tests for gymnastics and both basketball squads. We'll be back next week to preview Gator baseball, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at Presley Stadium.